Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome back to the show. This week's episode is all about how you can increase both your levels of happiness and the positive impact you have in the world. My guest is Paul Dolan, behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling books Happiness by Design and Happy Ever After. Our conversation is about recognizing that the stories we tell ourselves about what should make us happy, so things like high status jobs, millions of social media followers, even billions in the bank, are often inaccurate. Instead, we need to start paying attention to what actually does make us happy. For example, spending time with friends, pro-social acts of kindness, playing sport, listening to music, the list goes on. Paul also explains how our willpower is weak, but our so-called design power is strong, what that means and how you can harness it in your own life. We explore reaching narratives, this pervasive idea that we'll be happy when X happens and how X is never enough. Before we get to this week's chat, I want to say a big thanks to Raymond Chan in Hong Kong, James Williams, Mark Worrell, Oliver, Katie, Chris, Sarah Murray, David, Tim Luck, Karen, Edgar, Will Haynes and Sarah Lawrence for spreading the word about life lessons from sport and beyond. It is hugely appreciated and really does make a big difference. If you could please share this week's episode with a couple of people who might enjoy it and let me know, I will name check you next week. And if you did already share last week's episode and I haven't name checked you and you'd like me to, get in touch at Simon Mundy on social media or drop me an email via my website, simonmundy.com, where of course you can also sign up for my weekly newsletter, Monday on Monday. Right, time for this week's chat with Paul Dolan. Paul Dolan, how are you? Simon, hello, mate. Yeah, no, I'm absolutely fine, thank you. You? I'm very well. I'm delighted to see you. You too. We've met once before. I bumped into you on the piazza outside the BBC. I made a beeline for you. Easy to spot in those jazzy glasses. In fact, the glasses you're wearing today are very demure by your normal standards. Anyway, I made a beeline for you and was like, Paul, I love your work. You had this big beaming smile. Can you remember that? I remember it vividly. I, you know, it doesn't happen to me very often that people come and accost me in the street. So uh, I make the most of it when it happens. So your whole, well, not your whole, because you do a lot of interesting work. I know you do stuff with the government. You've got two fascinating books, Happy Ever After, Happy by Design. But happiness is an area that you're a bit of an expert in. And we're going to dig into that. But I wanted to start, Paul, if I may, with a subject that I really love which is the stories we tell ourselves generally. And I know this is something you talk about a lot. Could you start by um, just sharing that classic anecdote about your mate who worked in Media Land, please? I can. So just, can I, if you don't mind, I'll just give a, a, a few seconds of context to that because that is a, 
a story that's in Happiness by Design that became quite a prominent tale, as it were, that actually then um, acted in many ways as a catalyst for, for the work I did in Happy Ever After about the stories that we tell ourselves and are told about the things that should make us happy. And the, and the story is as follows. It's a true story based on my wife's best friend. And we went for dinner and, and she spent the whole of the evening variously complaining about her job her colleagues, her boss, her commute, everything about her daily experiences categorically suggested that she was fucking miserable in her job. <laughs> and then and then at the end of dinner, we stood up and she said, you know, I love working at Media Lab. Um, and she wasn't lying in the sense that her experiences were miserable, but the story that she told about working there was that she was happy. It's somewhere she'd always wanted to work. Her parents were proud. Her friends were jealous. How could she not be happy when she thought about whether it should make her happy? And so I think therein lies the contrast between what actually makes us happy day to day in comparison to the things that we think ought to through the stories and narratives that we tell. Um, and it's worth saying, of course, it can go the other way round, right? You might have a job or a partner or some other aspect of your life that on the face of it, is a bad story you know it's not somewhere that people should work it's not a partner that people like or whatever but actually day to day you're having a really good time with that person or in that job so it's not always in the direction that i explained it just now although often it is when that woman said that she loved the place she hated in a nutshell did you say anything at the time oh you know i'm far too kind to do that and i as if i'd ever as if I'd ever pick up anyone on their their incongruency or their inconsistencies. <laughs> <laughs> she actually since left. She actually since left working there and is much happier working somewhere else. So uh, it must have had some effect. This whole sort of idea of the stories we tell ourselves, which basically just means the degree to which we buy into both our thinking and cultural thinking en masse. Something I'm quite interested in is this idea of, of changing our thinking. I talk a lot about sports and a lot of people come on and talk about the obvious one, which is, for example, changing a negative thought into a positive thought. I'm pretty sceptical about that. I know from my own experience how much energy that takes. And second of all, there's just no need to do it, is there? Because a thought is just a thought. I mean, first of all, can we change our minds? Well, yeah, of course, but not, not very often and not really in significant ways, right? I mean, most of... Most of the time we believe something to be true, we will look for evidence that confirms that belief and then carry on believing it. When we find evidence that doesn't cohere with what we think we know, we're very good at being able to dismiss it, find ways of which it doesn't apply to us, and then carry on believing even more affirmed that we were right in the first place. So I think it is difficult to change minds, which is, I know, I know you want to come to this later, which is why I talk about changing environments and designing our life in ways that make it easier for us to be to be happier rather than changing our minds to be so. The simple answer I would give to your question, if I'm trying to be non-academic and say a thousand words when a hundred would do, is to say, it's really fucking hard to change our minds. <laughs> what we should alternatively do instead is focus on changing the environments and the context within which we act to make it easier for us to pay attention to the things that will make us feel good and not to those things that will make us feel bad. And I think to some large degree, this effortfulness conscious deliberation of changing our mind is overstated it's part of the reason why self-help books so will sell so well is because they don't work right you buy these books they say things like be positive you're like no shit i work that out but how do i actually do that and they don't give you the tools to implement those changes so i think we should rather than focus only on changing minds we should be changed focusing on changing the context within which our minds behave you say that people can't change their minds and I very much agree with you, right? And so I think for a long time, I was on a bit of a quest to change my mind and my insecurities and the old classic fix myself, perhaps my habitual thought patterns, all that kind of stuff, right? And then something that did help is developing a different relationship with my mind. So it's like just accepting it for what it is, whatever the content is, even if my mind is a thought pops up going, you're a bloody idiot, Simon. Or a thought pops up going, you're bloody brilliant, Simon. Thoughts change all the time. So my point is just there's too much emphasis on changing our minds 
rather than actually just seeing that it's just a stream of thoughts that are liable to change anyway. For example, you know, you go on about that classic well-being questionnaire. How happy are you with your life overall? I know how I would answer that would depend on how I feel in the moment. So if I've seen my mates, slept well, blah, 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 I'd be more prone to answer that in the positive. Whereas if I'm tired, etc., then I'd have more thoughts along the lines of my life sucks. No, you're absolutely right. So let me say two things. Let me say two things. First of all, on the on the question. So you said, you know, your answer to that life satisfaction question will depend on whether you're, you know, getting on well with the wife, the kids, and so on. Whether whether you've slept, which is precisely why I want to pay most attention to the experiences associated with your relationship with your wife, how well you've slept, you know, whether you're getting on with the kids. That's what fundamentally is your life's experiences Um, and not these narratives when you reflect upon how well life is going, which are not only liable to change as a result of the experiences, but actually you're only constructed when you're thinking about them, when you're placed in those settings where you're asked to think about them. Most of the rest of the time, you're getting on with having a good time or bad time with your wife and the kids and and the work and friends and so on. So there was a book in the 80s, I think, probably, maybe the 80s, that was called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff. I think that's completely wrong. It's actually everything is in the small stuff. It is in the things that you do day to day, moment to moment, and not the big stuff that sits in the narratives and stories that you that you tell. The other really key point I think you made in the, in, in, in the first bit of your question comment is acceptance. If you think about any, I mean, any therapy, really, whatever kind it is, of whatever genre, the first step to behavior change, and actually we should think about this in public policy making as well, is acceptance. Acceptance of ourselves as, as fallible, <laughs> self-sabotaging creatures and embracing that. I actually find that liberating, right? I'm a creature that's, you know, fallible and self-sabotaging. I'm driven by environments and by situations and contexts in ways that often lie below conscious awareness. Bring it on, right? I mean, I think I think sometimes... The biggest challenge that we face is getting over ourselves about these things is the acceptance of that. And once you once you accept those things, you can kind of take a you know, a little bit of a deep breath and and actually it makes the behavior change that you might want to engage in much more likely. Which is just, I think a certain irony to people because they think you've got to sort of be constantly battling and fighting because it's a challenge and you need to change all this stuff. But actually just accepting yourself is a really effective way to changing yourself. Yes. Well, it's the first step, isn't it? Absolutely. So what's your take then on the comparison between, let's say, self-acceptance and self-esteem? Because to me, self-esteem is just the story we tell about ourselves, whether good or bad. Yeah, it's good. And whether good or bad, you know, I mean, we do, we, we, it's all very, <laughs> it's all very complex, isn't it? I mean, we have, as you say, you move around between seeing yourself as brilliant as uh, and as an idiot and, and everything else in between. And, and, you know, all of us do to some large extent. It's just often sometimes when we look at people from the outside, and particularly when we look at the circumstances and conditions of their lives, we think they must be doing much more of the of one than of the other, right? If you see a successful person, however that's you know measured and defined, normally according to status and to income and to wealth and to success, maybe on the sporting field, we kind of imagine that they're paying attention to those achievements and that success all the time. And of course, they're not, you know, they're most of the time we're paying attention to the stuff that's going well or badly in our daily experiences, whether we've got a good relationship, you know, whether we are getting on with the spouse or the kids or whether, you know, we do have a good group of friends around us, all of these things, whether we're listening to music that we enjoy, you know, all of these things that have very little to do with what society judges to be successful or otherwise. So you're all about emphasising what we do, hence the name happiness by design and paying less attention to the stories and more to the experiences. So when you say pay attention to the experiences, can you just elaborate a bit on what you mean by that? Yeah, again, another good, another good question. So, pay, so first of all, let me just draw attention to the pay attention term, right? You just said pay attention. Now that, that implies something quite significant, or it actually doesn't imply something, it says something quite significant that you pay attention. It comes at a cost, it comes at a price. Attention is a scarce resource. When it's allocated in one direction, it necessarily means it's not being allocated somewhere else. So when we think about, let me just say like, let me just give a given give an example of, of of what a lot of people will talk about in happiness research, which is the effects of income on happiness, right? So people will say, does money make you happy? 
Well, the answer to that question is it depends on how much attention you pay it. Poverty makes people miserable because they're paying attention to whether they can feed the kids, pay the rent, how they're going to pay the bills. It's very attention-seeking. Being in debt is very attention-seeking. It's constantly drawing attention to itself. When people get a bit richer, they cease to pay attention to it in the way that they did when they were poor. Ironically, though, sometimes if you get super rich, then you really start paying attention to money again, right? Have I got the right portfolios? Have I got the right assets? Am I worth 100 million rather than 90 million? Am I, you know, shall I, you know, things that start drawing attention to themselves money in a different way to your poor. I'm not trying to make any um, glib comments about being rich and being poor are the same thing because they're clearly not. But I am making a comment about attentional resources devoted to money. And I think that when, you know, you're very interested in sport, you know, they often will say, referees in football games have had a good game when they when you don't notice them money's like that right the referee of money is having a good game when you're not paying attention to it attention is i want to make this point about it being consciously allocated when i'm deciding you know what i'm paying attention to looking to or whatever but it's also unconsciously allocated it's 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 allocated in my environment right when i notice things sometimes unconsciously that's going on around me right so you know, there's evidence that um, obese people, for example, notice cues for food more in ways that when they when they wear these Google glasses or whatever other brands are available, um, they they uh, that you can tell how quickly it's reacting in the brain to know whether it's being consciously processed or not. There's a lot more unconscious activation in obese people than there is in non-obese people. Some of the evidence suggests. I mean, none of this evidence is ever incontrovertible. So there's cues in our environment. So someone who drinks a lot of alcohol, they don't, they don't suddenly have a drink in their hand, right? There's a whole series of steps of behaviours that lead to them having a drink in their hand, the first of which is a cue in the environment to alcohol. And the same thing applies to, to most of what happens to us, not to us, you know, like for us or by us, is that there are stimuli in the environment often influencing us in unconscious ways that make us more or less likely to be drawn towards those stimuli. You know, happier people notice happier faces more often than less happy people who notice miserable faces more, right? All of this is, a lot of this is taking place below conscious awareness. I mean, we are driven though by our unconscious, aren't we? So I know you talk a lot about how our brains are energy savers and you've got system two and system one. In fact, just to for the, for the layman, would you mind just explaining the difference and how our behaviours slip from two into one, I believe, to become habits. Yeah, so let me first say that there aren't two systems in the brain, right? So it's not like you've literally got a system one, system two. It's a nice um, caricature and characterization of um, how the how the brain um, operates, particularly in relation to explaining behavior. So, I mean, I think if you, if you think about, let's go back to a sport analogy, think about uh, a golfer, a cricketer, a tennis player practicing their shots, right? beginning of training or practicing when they're early stages of their career, lots of effort, lots of deliberation, lots of thought about have they got the stroke right? Are they hitting the ball correctly? And there'll be lots of coaching around technique and they'll be watching videos of how they play the shots. Then through time, those shots become automatic. They don't become consciously deliberated on. They become almost effortless, unconscious and automatic, right? And actually, then, of course, remember that then with most sportsmen that choke, or sportswomen, sports play, people that, that, that choke, it's because they then start taking something that's been put into the habit system, into system one, back into system two, back into the conscious mind. You know, when Rory McIlroy or Jimmy White or whatever have, have, have missed shots in tournaments, it's almost certainly the case that they've started thinking about the shot. Um, and, and, and all of what was then encoded into automaticity becomes back into system two. So, so, so all of our behaviours are a complex interaction between, between these two systems. The, th the, the most substantive and important thing to say is that you're making thousands of decisions every day, right? I mean, I'm sitting here talking to you. I, my arms are moving around in particular ways. I'm not you know, I'm thinking about doing that. I'm doing it now, right? But it's only now that I mention it that I'm aware of doing it. Most of those behaviours are system one generated, influenced by cues in our environment, the fact that I'm looking at you in a particular way now whilst we're talking. And they lie below conscious awareness. They're habitual, they're automatic, they're fast and they're effortless. And that's what most of what we do is driven by. The bit that we have conscious access to, which is the system two, the deliberative, effortful bit, is almost like the, 
the validation and justification for what System 1 has already done for us. <laughs> but we see things very much the other way around. We think that our rational, you know, cognitive, conscious selves are the star of the show and System 1 plays a bit part when, when in fact, uh, most of the evidence points in the opposite direction. So in terms of paying attention then, if a lot of the things that we do are habitual, so the obvious one these days would be, for example, scrolling on social media. So what you're suggesting is paying attention in the moment to whether something like that is making us happy. And I've missed something quite key, which is either the pleasure or the purpose element of it. Yeah. So let me just elaborate a little bit on that. So to go back to where we were earlier on, for me, happiness is located in our experiences, in what we do, what we pay attention to, the people we're with, the music we listen to, you know, what, what we have, the, the, the ruminations in our minds. All of these things, not just, you know, activities, it's, it's stuff that goes on in our head, right? A lot of our time, we are, we're in our own minds thinking about things that, are, that have happened or a lot of times anticipating things that will happen, much of the time not living in the moment. Those experiences, how we feel day to day, are essentially come in two guises. They come in pleasure and they come in purpose or the obverse of those, which would be like pain and anxiety, worry, stress and misery and things that we find pointless and futile. And I argue in Happiness by Design that happy lives are ones that contain the right balance between pleasure and purpose. Things that we do that we find fun on the one hand and other things that we find fulfilling. Um, and we we allocate time in ways, if we're going to be happiest of all, to find the right balance between pleasure and purpose. It's not for me to prescribe to you that you should be having more of one or more of the other, but for you to work out for yourself where you're happiest with the balance between them. Um, between hedonic happiness and eudaimonic happiness, between fun and fulfillment between pleasure and purpose, as I call it in happiness by design. So, you know, being a father, you know, much of the time, not very much fun. Um, some of the time feels quite purposeful. Um, you know, going out for a drink, not the most purposeful thing in the world, but a lot of fun. Work sometimes combines a bit of each. So working out, actually, you know, again, a bit of each. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, you know, being a father, you know, much of the time, not very much fun. Um, some of the time feels quite purposeful. Um, you know, going out for a drink, not the most purposeful thing in the world, but a lot of fun. Work sometimes combines a bit of each. So working out, Actually, you know, again, a bit of each. Your mantra is, isn't it, Paul? Working out, going out. It, no, it is. You should have that tattooed somewhere. I should, shouldn't I? Work, yeah, work, work, working out, going out. Actually, can I just actually, I just say something about tattoos? Because uh, actually, since you mentioned that randomly, although it's not so random, is that one of the one of the criticisms people will make of of sort of happiness research and happiness measurement is that it's all subjective, right? 
Well, that's the whole fucking point. It is subjective. That, that, that is the point of our experiences, right? So I've got tattoos of various parts of my body. People will ask me, did they hurt? And I'm like, well, I can say this one did and that one didn't, but I have no idea whether it will hurt you in the same, same way in the same place, right? Now, the brainstem might be recording the pain in an objective sense, but the subjective experience of pain will differ significantly across individuals. You see it in, you know, the tattooist will see it. You see it every time you go into a tattoo parlor, someone's screaming in agony, someone else isn't. So it's that subjective experience that matters. That's what, that's what life is. It is lived through how we perceive, interpret and experience and feel the world. So that's why I'm so committed to, to measuring those subjective experiences directly. So in terms of like the scrolling on social media though, right? So uh, it's one of those things that people will just do unconsciously, but if you start paying attention to it, you're going to, um, I imagine, recognize that it doesn't really fall into either hugely the pleasure or the purpose camp and therefore should do it less, yet we don't. So what's going on there? Yeah. Well, so a couple of things. Maybe, we, maybe we're pathological. Right. I mean, that, that would be one. I mean, so actually, the answer to this question will be a combination of all of the following. Um, that there are other benefits that come from those activities that are not easily capturable by the measures that we currently have. Or that there's something to do with missing out that feels significant, that doesn't make us happy. I want to tell you a really, about a really cool um, econ paper where they... Where, where people were, and I'm going to do the paper an injustice, but the general principles apply when I tell you this following story. People have basically um, come off of uh, Facebook, I think it is, for, for a week or two or a month or something, whatever. Details don't, don't matter for the purposes of this illustration. And people report being happier as a result of that. Throughout the period, they, they get direct feedback that they feel better as a result of doing this. Then they can express their willingness to pay to go back on. Now, what they ought to say is that <laughs> I'm not paying a penny, mate. You need to give me money to go back onto something that's making me miserable. But the but in, on average, I don't know, whatever the answer is, like, about $80 is the, is the average willingness to pay to go back on. So people are willing to pay to go back onto something that makes them miserable. That is weird. That's a... That's a challenge, right? And there must be something. There's a, again a number of possible explanations. Maybe, maybe we're not being measuring the happiness effects of being on Facebook as, as you know, well as we should. Maybe if we had 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 the right measures, measures it would show up as making people happy. But maybe there's a kind of sense in which I kind of know it's not good for me, but I don't want to be missing out on what other people are up to, right? And it's like a, it's kind of like a moth to a flame in a way, right? We're sort of drawn to these things that. Ah, uh, we know we shouldn't be, but we just can't help ourselves. And I think a lot of what we do in life is like that. Yeah, yeah. So you say willpower is weak and design power is strong. Yeah. Which is a beautiful line. Yeah. Whether it be scrolling or like when I used to work Fridays at the BBC and it'd be like bring cakes and cookies in and I'd be up there just handfuls of the stuff. So dreadful willpower. So I know you talk a lot about controlling the environment and this is why I like being at home because, you know, I can stock load of veg and all that stuff and go to bed on time and which helps me feel happy. So I'm very conscious of that stuff. But in terms of design power, so when you say design power is strong, what do you mean by that and how can we harness it? Yeah, so you gave a very good illustration just now, right? The scrolling, you know, like expecting people to have willpower over scrolling or expecting you to have willpower over you know, scoffing all the cakes when they're in the office is uh, an unreasonable expectation. And it places, it places too much responsibility on individual agency and volition and control. Just take the cakes away. Put your phone in a phone box, you know, like one of those phone boxes, you know, that you can lock your phone away in for a few hours. That's going to be much more effective, right? I mean, that's going to work. I mean, the simple, the simple reason people do most things is because they can. And the simple reason they don't is because they can't, right? So so the behavioral science lesson, like 101, is if you want someone to do something, make it easier. And if you don't want them to do it, make it hard. We can do this for ourselves as well as for other people. Like, remove the temptation, re re remove the ease of access, the opportunity to engage in behaviors if you don't want to do them. 
don't keep thinking that you can put yourself into these environments and I'm going to be strong. My mind is powerful. I'll be able to resist. Why make that so hard for yourself? And actually, you're quite weak anyway. So, you, you know, you're kind of doomed to fail. Just just make it harder. Um, and, that, and, that, and that's what I mean by design power. Make it easy to do the things that you want to do and harder to do the things you don't. So in terms of the things that we want to do, the things that will make us happy, and you often say they're really obvious, listen to music, play sport, see friends, go out for a drink, do something kind for other people in terms of purpose, selfish altruism, which is a fantastic phrase. But obviously people do find it hard to actually design a life to really ensure we're getting enough of all these little things that we know will make us happy. So we know we should be doing it, but how can we use that design power to make sure that we are doing those things? Like, what would be your your advice there? Yeah. So first of all, first of all, I, I kind of question a little bit whether we know these things, right. or not, right? Because, well, I, I say that because of the power of the narratives and the stories, right? So if I if I say to you, you know, what's what's going to make you happy? You say, well, earning a few more quid or you know, getting a nice house or get, you know, and actually, you won't say. I tell you what, I should do. I should just put on my playlist. Uh, for 15 minutes more each day in my headphones. But I, I'm not sure that you would, I'm not sure that you would like necessarily measure that. It's obvious, but it's overlooked. Yeah. That's, that's, that's why I think a lot of these things are, you know, obvious, but overlooked, um, you know, like going outdoors, right? I think you, I think you know that if you go for a walk for five minutes after we come off this call, it's pretty cold out there now, but just getting outside, getting some fresh air, kind of feel a bit better. Will you do it? Well, well, you might now we've mentioned it, but you know, probably not most of the time. Right. So, so, so I don't think that like sometimes we do, we don't remind ourselves of the of the obvious but overlook things. But insofar as we do, then making it easy for ourselves, I you know I, I forget I've got so I've got a very nice pair of noise cancelling headphones that I can wear on the train to stop me getting into a fight with people when I tend to shut up for playing their own music too loud or or, to, or uh, talking too loud about their sex lives or god knows whatever else they're talking about. But um, I don't know what trains you're going on, but go on, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Or maybe I just only hear the ones that are about this about their sex life. But you know, I sometimes forget to take my headphones with me, right? Or if, or they're in my bag and I forget to put them on. So I need to like find cues and ways to remind myself to do these things. All, all all of us do because sometimes they can just be easily forgotten. And and that requires many of these behaviours. Sort of speaking to the earlier point I made about cues in the environment leading to the behaviour requires us to have plans that enable us to implement those intentions, right? So you know, going out for a walk with friends or, or meeting some friends or having a new experience requires not, it doesn't, it doesn't just happen. It requires a plan that needs to be implemented. Um, it's called implementation intentions in the academic literature. You have a very detailed plan that is going to get you to do something. It's been used quite a lot in policy, you know, like, so for example, getting people to vote, you don't say, are you going to vote? Right. It's like, okay, uh, where's the polling station? Are you going to get there? Who, who are you going to go with? Are you going to go in the morning, in the afternoon, before work, after work? Right, all of these things that are detailed implementations of the behaviour, and the same applies to designing it into our own lives. We, we we should be expending. I've talked about this automaticity and effortless system, but actually, to get to that point requires some effort. And I and I use an analogy. I think in by design of sort of designing a park for a dog. Right, you sort of you spend a lot of time designing the park, and then you let the dog off the lead and let it run around. So you spend you spend time designing you know ways in which you're going to implement plans of listening to more music, going outdoors, spending time with friends, and then you let the dog off, um, and it just makes it easier for you to do those things because you've got very clear plans that allow you to implement those behaviours. Okay, so just as a practical bit of advice, would it be something like make sure you've got dates in the diary, plan your gym session or your your walk outside plan when you're going to listen to music i mean plan to the nth degree yeah but everything you know that i'm going to say everything's about balance isn't it plan to the nth degree sounds awful doesn't it i mean as you've got a, a, a yeah. life that is so structured and organized and of course one of the key things one of the key things one of the key components of happiness is spontaneity i think actually it's one of the reasons why people have struggled so much over this last you know couple of years is that the opportunities for spontaneity have been significantly curtailed so the, the ability to be able to just do something or extend something beyond the point at which you thought you might otherwise stop has just been limited. So we need to allow, maybe there's sort of planned spontaneity. I, I've got a, had an executive master's student at the LSE who, who did that with couples and sex, right? Um, 
and getting what we call planned spontaneity is that they they would plan <laughs> when they were going to have sex. Actually, because you know the you know the day passes, you get to bedtime, you know, and another day passes, you know, and another day passes. So there is a there is a role for planning these things in, but but not over engineering it like like most things. And what you certainly don't want to be doing is paying attention to the happiness of it, right? There's a very cool study where people are listening to music and they're told just to listen to it and enjoy it and see how they are. And then another, another arm of the trial where they are asked to be happy listening to it. <laughs> and the ones that are asked to be happy are less happy than the ones that just listen to it. So you don't want to be sort of focusing attention too much on either the plan sometimes, but particularly on, on, on the happiness of it. It's just like find the things that make you feel good, do them and just crack on with enjoying them. Yeah, that, I've heard you talk about that music story before, and it's like yeah. like the difference between being lost in the pure experience of it, and then yeah. adding a narrative to it, which just sucks the joy out of the pure pure experience of it. And you know that this, you know, this is now sounding like a very very old man, but the number of people who get their phones out of festivals and gigs and oh, concerts, don't, mate, don't. not only do they get in my way, not only is someone else recording it much better than you are anyway. Like you're interrupting the flow of your experience by doing that. Hundred percent. I, I went to a gig fairly recently and told my best mate off for exactly that thing. His phone was out as the band slash orchestra, whatever it was, came out, and I was like, "Put that away. Stay present. Stay present." Yeah. Something you touched on earlier about this sort of doing something because we think it's going to make us happy. So you talk about reaching narratives. Now, I find this very interesting. I know, for example, you talk about wealth, success. Yeah. But I find this very interesting in sport, for example. The number of people who strive to, let's say, yeah. reach, let's think of the classics, so Olympic gold, win a Grand Slam, whatever it may be, all these different things, strive, strive, strive. And then the narrative being, I'll be happy when I achieve this. Yeah. And actually, it doesn't live up to the hype. So this is clearly a common phenomena across a whole variety of different areas. Yeah, so a couple of things. I mean, this is where I'm going to sound very cheesy, but sometimes cheesy things are accurate. It's the journey, not the destination. I mean, that is, you know, you hear that all the time, but it is, it's very, it's, it's really true. I mean, so first of all, like though it's true that many of those people that make those attainments and achievements don't feel quite so good about them when they get there as they imagined and the and the effects are not very long lasting but of course you've got all those people that fell by the wayside that we don't pay attention to <laughs> as we celebrate only those that make it to the summit um i mean mountaineering is actually particularly interesting because not not only i mean like many people die right you don't get very many old mountaineers um and about three quarters to four fifths of the accidents happen on the way down from the summit rather than on the way up. Right. So they, they actually get they get to the summit and it's the, almost like the, it's only, they're only part way through the bit that's dangerous, which is the bit that follows. So there's not even very much enjoyment. So there's a real pathology in that in a way. And the other thing is, as we have, we have a paper out um, recently, which looked at the, um, there was an earlier, Earlier paper from an, from the I don't know eighty eight Olympics was there an eight? Yes, there was Seoul Ben Johnson eighty eight one yeah where um, or or ninety two ninety two Barcelona maybe where they where they um, where they got people to code the facial expressions of the medalists and they showed that bronze medalists were happier than silver medalists because the counterfactual was different like the silver could have been gold the bronze are pleased to be on the podium we 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 did it with with much larger samples of coders. Um, for both team and individual sports at the 2012 London Games. And we found something quite interesting that, um, and, and maybe unsurprising when I tell you the, the conclusion, that whether a silver medalist was happier or not than the bronze medalist was really turns on how close they were to gold. So so when when you could have just got gold, <laughs> then you really pissed off as a silver medalist. But when, you're, when you only just beat the bronze person, <laughs> then you're much happier than the bronze person. And that counterfactual thinking, is really quite pervasive in a lot of what we do, particularly in sport, right? It's it's what you would have other, otherwise won. Yeah, yeah. Um, I remember when Roger Black won, won his silver medal to Michael Johnson, right? No one was ever going to beat Michael Johnson, were they, right? That was a gold, right? Because Michael Johnson is just another, it's almost like another race taking place. Everyone else is in the race for silver. Um, so uh, I, I, do, I do find it interesting. I mean, I actually love sport. I love the fine margins of sport. I love the emotion of sport. I love... I love all that all that is in sport is just the most like amazing set of experiences. At the same time, I do wonder why we eulogize so much these people who are 
basically just doing what someone else did, only a tiny little bit quicker or a tiny little bit better. So really fascinating. Like I have that real juxtaposition in my mind because I love it on the one hand and, and oh my God. But on the other hand, it's like, it's a little bit silly. <laughs> I can totally understand why you're saying that. And also I think a lot of people are now starting to talk about the reasons why people go to the nth degree. Like you mentioned mountaineering, people go to the nth degree to to achieve this and perhaps neglect or other areas of their life, lose balance, put all their eggs in this one basket yeah. for this medal or whatever. Yeah. Get it. And then it's like, God, was was that really worth it? So one thing I will say about that, I've got I think, is that like let's celebrate their successes with the medals and the trophies and everything else, right? But let's not give them knighthoods and peerages and everything else that goes alongside it, right? It's enough, right? You're an Olympic gold medalist. You don't have to be dame or lord, right? Let's save Let's save those honours for people that are doing pro-social acts, that are doing things that are selfishly motivated because most, nearly all that we do is has some personal benefit to it, but that have consequent and obvious spillover effects for the benefits of other people. Um, that's where I would. That's that's what I would change about our system of you know honours and everything, and celebrate people who you know really do do good in a in a genuinely pro-social sense. Yes, I want to get to that. Just a final point on the these reaching narratives. Can you just give a quick overview in terms of though? Yeah. For example, future living. Are we happy when X? Whether that be I get X money, or I get X level of success, or I get X followers, or I get X IQ score, whatever it may be, and the the illusion of it because there's never enough. It is never enough. I, I talk about the narrative of more please uh, to be replaced with one of just enough and, and, and knowing when you've got just enough. Like everybody will say, oh, yeah, if I just to get to that point, then I'd stop, right? Well, of course, what gets you to that point is precisely the reasons why you don't stop because it becomes an addiction. You get sucked in. It's like everything. You need more and more and more to get to get a hit. And so the what's it was overarching themes if you like of happiness by design is 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 much more in the in the in the self-help genre insofar as it's about what you can do for yourself to yourself to make you happier whereas happy ever after is about it's really hard to be swimming against the tide individually this is a collective action problem you know we can't we can't just all you know no individual is going to say just enough we need societal constructions that change the way in which we engage with one another and um, communities and society that that help us rein ourselves in. And a beautiful suggestion that you've made is instead of doing the yearly rich list, the yearly taxpayer list. So who pays the highest amount of tax? Who's contributing the most? Which I thought was fantastic. Which taps into your pro-social stuff. And the Sunday Times now do that. I'm going to say I have no idea whether oh. it was whether it was a, as a result of me saying idea. it, but I'm going to say I'm going to say that they did. Um, but they have started publishing the the top taxpayers when they present the rich list. And but it is interesting. You still go on Google now, wherever or other websites are available. That you that you uh, if you type in the richest person in the world, you get Jeff Bezos or you know Bill Gates, whatever comes up immediately. If you type in highest taxpayers, you get all tax avoidance schemes, places where you can hide your money. Uh, you know, it, it, we don't, we're not we're not celebrating uh, people that do good in the same way as we celebrate people that uh, accumulate assets. So selfish altruism, which I really like to talk about this. So it's acknowledging the fact that if we go out and do something kind, do something good for other people, there's nothing wrong with acknowledging the fact that part of the reason we're doing it is to make us feel good because it does make us feel good. You know, if we're kind, it releases oxytocin, et cetera, et cetera. Instead of this, you've got to be holier than thou. Yeah, it's a really powerful narrative. And I we feel good when we help other people. That's that's there is no doubt about that. And there's actually very good um, causal evidence on this. There's lots of randomized controlled trials, as you know, as we as we would call them, and, and that we like them, where we can allocate people to different conditions and look at the causal effects of treatments. But if you tap into the selfishness of you know of, for example, volunteering, talking about the benefits that you're going to get from it, you get more volunteers, and they volunteer for long. So so it, it's it's a statement of fact, I think, as much as anything else is any in in any of this evidence that. Tapping into the selfishness of selflessness is a very effective thing to do. And yet, you're absolutely right. We have this moral hierarchy of charity, right? Where at the pinnacle of it is the self-flagellation. The fact that I'm actively harming myself (laughs) to help other people. And if I could actually be benefiting from it, then how it somehow undermines the whole enterprise. And as you know from Happy Ever After, I talk about David Beckham and the abuse that he got when his emails were leaked, when he... 
Um, we haven't got long left, so I won't go into too much detail. Or, or, or actually, thankfully for, for you, use some of the expletives that he used in his emails. Um, but he was a bit miffed that he didn't get recognised for his charitable giving in the New Year's Honours, but uh, for all the work he's done with Beckham 7 and UNICEF and everywhere else. And, and various people, Piers Morgan included, waded in as if this undermined the whole uh, work he'd done. Well, go and find the kids whose life he's improved and ask them whether it undermines it or not. Right? Absolutely not, because he's done good. So the fact that he might, after the fact, I don't think David Beckham was at all motivated by doing it because he wanted a knighthood, but after the fact, he thought, actually, it might be quite nice if someone appreciated this. And we should be appreciating it. We should be recognising it and celebrating it more. Interesting question that follows from that, though, is why is it that we don't like people that show off about their pro-sociality, right? There's nothing worse than someone saying, or nothing worse, you know, we don't like it, do we? When so, you know, I've done all these great good deeds, you think. Bit of dick, and I think part of it is that it reminds us of our own selfishness and the fact that we probably could be doing more to help other people, and the judgments that we make about other people, which is I, I, I kind of almost what we want to make sure that we get this point across uh, because I really am fascinated. I've always been fascinated by why we care so much about what other people do, like disproportionately to its effect on us. Um, and sometimes it's for good reason. It maintains social order. There might be evolutionary advantage in us having hierarchies and structures and, and norms of behaviour that uh, that might be collectively beneficial or evolutionary advantageous. But sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's because we're jealous. Sometimes it's because we'd like to be living lives like them, but if only we could free ourselves of some of these uh, stories. There's a really cool paper on... Um, on homophobia, uh, where where men are categorised according to their degree of homophobia from the survey responses that they give, and then um, they're they're shown gay porn and penile blood flow is measured uh, amongst the homophobic and the non-homophobic group, and you get more arousal in the homophobic group than in the non-homophobic group, um, and and this is interesting I think because one of the reasons why we might not like a group is because precisely because we'd actually like to be part of that club if only we could free ourselves of parental expectations of what God might want for us or what society expects. And so I, I am genuinely fascinated by why we care so much about what other people do. And actually, most of the time, I don't think this is a particularly controversial thing to say, although it seems to cause a stir sometimes when I say it, it's just like chill out and accept the fact that other people might lead a different path to you. The world will still keep on turning. Most of us will still probably still be doing the things that we were doing before in the same fallible and self-sabotaging ways, but we'll just be a little bit more accepting of difference. Right, Paul, uh, it's been lovely chatting to you. I want to just just summarise briefly, if we can. I'm just going to throw a few things out there. So acceptance, we spoke about it at the beginning and we've now spoken about it at the end. Something you always say, which I think is a beautiful line, do things that bring either pleasure or purpose. If they don't tick either box, stop doing them. We should be acting in pro-social ways, selfish altruism, and there's no shame in actually shouting from the rooftops about that. You talk about planning and doing the things that we, I mean, you can Google what makes us happy, the simple things. So not, not sweating the small stuff, doing the small stuff that will make us happy, laughing a bit more, experiences over objects, modest expectations. So if you just had to sort of a final summary of, of your both your books and your work, touching on some of the stuff I've just said there, could you just round off? Oh, I can't do a better job than that, mate. I mean, you've done a really good <laughs> job for me. I do like the fact that you, added, that you added laughter in there because I think that's like humour is really, really, really important. And I think there's two under-researched areas in academia. One is sex and the other is laughter. And I think that's probably because academics don't have much sex and they don't laugh at very much. Um, and I do, I do think that they are like two of the fundamentals of the human condition that we need to remind ourselves of much, much more. 100%, yeah. Laughter <laughs> is the best medicine. It's a che another cheesy quote, but it's definitely true, isn't it? Anyway, listen, Paul, I'm a huge fan of your work. Both your books are absolutely brilliant, really practical. They had a huge impact on me, which is why I made a beeline for you as soon as I saw you on the piazza that day. Yeah, no, thank you for that, mate. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on. I'm very, very grateful. Mate, this, is, this, is, this has been both a pleasure and a purpose. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode with Paul Dolan. I am a big fan of Paul's work, Happiness by Design, in particular had a big impact on me when I read it. 
Forget those reaching narratives and start doing more of the small things that make you happy. For me, that means time with friends, exercise, eating well, playing tennis, reading, recording podcasts, and having the old glass of wine with my wife. I'd love to hear your simple happiness habits. Message me on social media at Simon Mundy and I will share your responses. Also, do drop me a line via my website, simonmundy.com, where you can also sign up for Monday on Monday, my weekly newsletter featuring the best lessons I've learned from these conversations and beyond to help live a good and happy life. Thanks again to everyone I name-checked at the start of the show for sharing last week's episode of Life Lessons. If you'd like a name-check, please do share this episode or any other with two people. Let me know and I'll do the rest. Word of mouth recommendation is so important and can make a real difference and I would be immensely grateful. And finally, just a quick thought following on from Paul's words about pro-social acts. I've linked to the Red Cross in this week's show notes. I've made a... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Donation, and I know they're in desperate need of funds with the disaster going on in Ukraine. So if you fancied making a donation, the link is there. Until next time, think purpose or pleasure and have a great week. 